The worst job that I ever had was the first job that I ever got. I, the first job I ever worked was at a shoe store called Finish Line. And at the time, it was brand new, so it was really popular and really big, and I was really excited to work there. But the reason that I didn't like the job, in fact, I hated the job and quit pretty quickly, was because I really felt like I did not receive proper training, especially for my first job. My training was four hours the night before my first shift, and we spent very little time like on the computers learning how to ring stuff in and in the back learning the very complicated shoe system and we spent almost the entire time learning sales techniques for how to get people to buy the more expensive shoe or for when they buy a shoe how to convince them to buy new laces and shoe cleaners and stuff like that so I showed up on my first day of work and I quite honestly I really had no idea what I was doing I was prepared to talk you into some shoelaces uh, but I really didn't know how to actually find your shoe or ring you out it was very, very intimidating. In other words, I was part of the team, but there was this discomfort I had because, quite frankly, I really, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know how to do my job. I had the t-shirt, I had the name tag, but I, I didn't know what to do. And this is the very kind of spiritual discomfort that Paul wrote the book of Ephesians 4. Paul wrote to these poor Gentile Ephesians who had heard the gospel and become Christians. They joined the team, but they really didn't know what to do afterward, right? Now that I've been baptized, now that I'm sort of wearing my Christian t-shirt, I've got my Christian name tag, how should I live? What do I do? Right, because keep in mind, the Gentiles in Ephesus did not have hundreds of years of tradition in Jewish scriptures like the Jewish converts did. They had no prior experience of what we might call kingdom living. There is, an, there is a great amount of what we call discontinuity between the New and the Old Testament, meaning the covenants are different. Life in the covenants are different. So there is a transition from the Old Covenant to the New. Things have changed. But there is also a great amount of what we call continuity, of overlap. There are a lot of things that are true in the New Covenant that were true in the Old. And so for so many of the Jewish converts, life didn't change quite so drastically. Uh, the vast majority of their moral way of life outside of the ceremonial laws remained the same. If you told a Jewish person, don't be sexually immoral now that you're a Christian, they would know what that means. Because the sexual laws pretty much carried over. So the Jews sort of had an advantage, if you will, in Christian living that the, the Gentiles didn't have. To use my same analogy, it would be similar to had I had worked at a different shoe store and then transferred to finish line, I would have been much further ahead. There still would have been some differences. There would have been some new adjustments I would have had to have made, but I would have been ahead of the curve, so to speak. But I didn't have any experience, not just at a shoe store, but I had no work experience at all. And in a certain sense, that's how the Ephesians came into Christianity. They had no religious experience underneath Yahweh the way the Jews had. They, they really did not know what to do. And the rest of the letter is going to show that. Paul's going to tell these Ephesians, stop doing this, this, and that. And you're going to be amazed that they were ever doing that in the first place. How could they think that that was okay? But you have to keep in mind, you became a Christian within a Christian culture with 2,000 years of history behind you. 
The, the culture you became a Christian and was already, Christian values were already baked into the culture. So a lot of Christian morality seems common sense to us. But it wasn't common sense to the Greco-Roman world. These Ephesians needed to be taught, they needed to be trained. Now that I'm a Christian, how do I do my job? What do I do? And so that's really what the rest of the book of Ephesians is all about for us. The rest of the letter is Paul instructing us on some very basic principles of Christian living. Paul is going to, for however many more weeks, essentially train us, here's how you do your job. Here's how Christians live out the Christian life. And he begins with this ever-important concept of unity. Christians need to live in unity. Would you open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3? Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, and I would invite you to stand when you get there. Thus says the Lord, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is the reading of God's Word. Please be seated. Verse 1 is an incredibly important verse in the book of Ephesians. I would argue that verse 1 is a summary of the entire book. If you wanted to summarize the entire book of Ephesians, I truly believe it is found in verse 1. Paul tells us in verse 1 that as a prisoner for the Lord, he urges us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. So there are two elements in that verse. There's walking, which is a metaphor for how to live your life. And then there's this issue of a calling, spiritually being called to salvation, being called to salvation in Christ. So Paul says in verse 1 that God has, uh, has placed upon you this special privilege. He has called you into a new kingdom. He has called you into a new way of life. And so now it's time for you to live according to that new identity. And that is basically the structure of the book of Ephesians. The first three chapters, as you've seen so far, have been deeply theological and they've been all about our calling. In other words, Paul can't tell you to live according to your calling if you don't even know what your calling is. So while Paul wanted to write to the Ephesians and tell them, here's how to live according to your calling, he thought, I better explain their calling to them. So they know what it is. So Ephesians 1 through 3 is all about your calling as a Christian. Predestination, adoption, Christ saving us, Jew and Gentile being brought into one new man. Right? This is all very, what we call soteriological, issues of salvation. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 were all about the gospel. We had those famous, chapter 2 is some of the most famous verses for people in all of the Bible. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. It is not of works, right? You were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God made you alive. We have all these verses memorized because it's a great exposition of our calling of salvation. But now that Paul has adequately explained our calling to us, he's going to shift for the next three chapters and tell us, here's how to walk according to it. Here's what it looks like to live that calling out. So verse 1, again, really encapsulates 
the entire book, to live according to your calling. I remember uh, when I gave the introductory sermon to the book of Ephesians, I used uh, the analogy of, I like driving around in Roswell and seeing cadets walking around in their uniform from NIMI, from the military institute. And I'm sure, I don't know if, what the rules are, if they're ever allowed to wear their civilian clothes or not, I don't know. But I'm sure that there's probably been times where I've seen a cadet, but he wasn't in uniform, or she wasn't in uniform, so I didn't know. But once they put on their uniform, then it's obvious, and there is a different expectation once they put that uniform on. You can behave in your civilian clothes in one way, but if you do something silly while in uniform, now we're talking a whole new level of offense because you've now brought shame to the uniform. Not just to yourself in your civilian clothes, but you've brought shame to what you're representing. Uh, I use the analogy, uh, sports teams do this all the time. Right? When, when, when a school goes traveling to another city for a game, and they say, now everywhere you go, you're not just representing yourself, you're representing your school. You're representing your team. You're, you're representing the jersey on your back, right? And that is really what Paul is doing in Ephesians. You have put Christ on in baptism. You, you are wearing your Christian jersey. You are wearing your Christian uniform, and this is not one that we ever take off. When you are baptized, you put Christ on and you never take him off. So you are always in uniform. You're always walking around representing your church, representing Christ. So how do we live in such a way that doesn't bring shame and honor upon Christ? This is a huge theme for Paul, not just in Ephesians, but in almost all of his writings. For example, he says things like this in the book of Philippians. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He says again in the book of Colossians, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. You see, when you put on Christ in baptism, you have a new expectation on your life. You always wear your Christian uniform, and so you must always live accordingly. Verses 2 through 3 then explain the first step of Christian living, right? So we've put on our uniform, and Paul's going to give us a long laundry list of do's and don'ts. And what's the first one that Paul begins with? And he begins by calling us to strive for unity. He tells us that we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Look again with me at verse 3. That we are, verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In fact, both this week and next week are actually about unity. But they're going to be about different kinds of unity. Next week is a different kind of unity that we're looking at this week. So what kind of unity are we looking at? In other words, it's not enough for me just to say, hey, step number one to being a Christian, be eager to maintain our unity. Well, what does that mean? What does that look like? What kind of unity are we talking about? And I've titled this sermon, Spiritual Unity. What I think Paul is calling us to is what I'm referring to as a spiritual unity. And there are three reasons why I think that this is an appropriate title. The first one's the most obvious, and it's that the text tells us that this unity we are maintaining comes from the Holy Spirit. Look with me again at verse 3. That we are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So this is a unity that we didn't create. We maintain it, but we didn't create it. The Spirit created it. The Spirit is the one who united us. So this is a spiritual unity in that sense. 
But the second reason why I think it's appropriate to call this a spiritual unity is because this text is focusing on relational unity. Or in other words, the unity of our spirits. Your spirit and your soul being united to my spirit and my soul. And I know that this is relational because Paul says that the manifestation of, our, of this kind of unity is peace. Right? Again in verse 3, that we are eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. What is the bond of our unity? How is it manifested? How do we know if we have unity? And the answer to that is that we have peace with one another. There's no conflicts between us. There's no divisions between us. We have peace. So that's a relational term. Uh, the, the, and, and what I'm juxtaposing this relational term to is a doctrinal unity. That's why I'm emphasizing the spiritual unity. In other words, I don't believe Paul is talking about a doctrinal unity. Sometimes when we talk about churches being unified, we're talking about what they believe. Uh, for example, not long after the Reformation, one of the primary arguments that the Roman Catholic Church started to make against the Reformed and the Lutherans was, you guys aren't unified. Look, you've already got all these denominations. The Lutherans believe this about the Lord's Supper. The Calvinists believe this. The Lutherans believe you can lose your salvation. The Calvinists believe you can't. And over time, we've only had more and more and more denominations. And so a criticism of the Reformation has been they lack unity. So when someone is criticizing unity in that context, they're not criticizing relational unity because I could walk into a room with a Lutheran and we're the best of friends and I love them and I speak the world of them and I'll do gospel ministry with them and I'll praise them, but people would still look at us and say, oh, you're not unified. Well, how are we unified? <laughs> how are we? Well, because you have doctrinal divisions. So there is a sense in which people can be unified in terms of what they believe. I don't think that's what Paul's talking about today. He's talking about a relational unity, one which is characterized by peace. It's a unity of spirit, not a unity of mind. The fact of the matter is, whether we like to admit it or not, it is a very real reality that two people can sign the exact same confession of faith and still hate each other. Two people can go to the same denomination, even be a part of the same church, but not like each other. And I would argue to you that a church that has a common creed, but can't get along, is not a church that we should rightly call unified. This is the kind of unity we're focusing on here, a relational, spiritual unity. And the third reason I think this is the case it's because of how Paul instructs us to maintain this unity, right? We're going to look at these obviously in more depth, but let's just briefly gloss over them. How is it that we maintain the unity Paul's talking about? Look at verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. You see, Paul tells us to maintain whatever kind of unity we're talking about. The way we maintain it is through behavior modification, it's through love and gentleness and patience. Those don't really apply to theology, right? It's, it's like uh, uh, being more patient is not going to determine whether you believe the atonement is limited or unlimited, right? Being more gentle is not going to determine whether you think election is conditional or unconditional. He's not addressing a problem that is solved through teaching, 
through a doctrinal component. He's addressing a problem that's solved through a relational modification. So again, the unity we're talking about here is relational, or I prefer the word spiritual. And this spiritual unity is what Paul tells us we must be eager to maintain. And so in a very real sense, Paul has made my job incredibly easy today. The, the, the main, what's the gist of this passage? What's the primary purpose of this passage? Well, Paul has said it pretty clearly. We are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. But I think that we can rework it so that it encompasses all three verses and not just the last verse. So I think we can rework it. So here's what I would say is the main idea of the sermon. If you were to walk out this room and someone in, in your community would say, hey, what'd you learn in church today? This is how I would summarize these three verses. The gospel requires of us to fight for the unity of our church. I'll say that again. The gospel requires of us to fight for the unity of our church. The reason I put it this way is that because Paul does not allow us to divorce our fight for unity from the gospel. So we can't make the sermon just about fighting for unity because Paul has connected our fight for unity to the gospel. And in fact, he goes more than just connecting it. He actually establishes the, the gospel is the only motivation and grounds we have for unity. If, if, if the gospel isn't true, we have no reason to be unified and no motivation to try so hard to be unified. Without the gospel, unity is a fool's errand. We don't want to disconnect our unity from the gospel. I like the way one of the commentators I read put it. He said it this way. Paul is aware that ultimately the profundity of their theological appreciation appropriated in worship will be far more effective in helping them to be what they are meant to be than merely piling moral exhortation upon moral exhortation and exhorting to a way of life that corresponds to such a calling. This will not be seen as a mere moral advice, but as an appeal to the reader's experience of the theological heart of the gospel. Let me put that in my own terms. What Paul is doing is Paul knows it is not effective to just walk into a room and beat people over the head with rules. He doesn't want to just walk into the church of Ephesus, do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that, I'm out. That doesn't work. The Christian life is not just moral guidance. It's not just laws. It is laws, it is moral guidance, but there's stuff underneath it. And it's the gospel. So Paul doesn't just come in and say, hey, you guys need to be patient. Hey, you guys need to be humble. Hey, you need to bear with one another. He's saying, the gospel demands this. The gospel is true and it needs to create this. He's, he's linking our good works, our sanctification, to the foundation of the gospel. And so in this, it's not just moral advice. It is appealing to our experience of the heart of the gospel. Jesus Christ has done this for me. How do I respond to that? That's Christian morality. It's not just do this or you'll be punished, right? So the gospel compels us to be unified. Another way to think about it is that our spiritual calling needs to be expressed visibly. We have a spiritual unification, we have a gospel unification, but the world can't see that, right? The gospel's not something you go and buy at Walmart, right? The gospel's not a finish line t-shirt that you wear. We have unity, but people need to see it. 
We need to live accordingly. We need to live in light of this unity that the Spirit has created. People need to see externally what is true internally. We need to show the world that we are unified because of the gospel. And in fact, this connection that our unity has to the gospel is why Paul does not merely call us to be unified. The commandment is technically not to be unified. What's the commandment? Go back to verse 3. This is really interesting. We have been called to walk in a certain way with humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. Verse 3, eager to maintain the unity. Notice, Paul is not just commanding us that we be unified. He's commanding that we value unity. Right? He does not say, live according to your calling in unity. The commandment is your eagerness. You need to be eager to maintain unity. In other words, because this commandment is coming from the gospel, and it's not just a commandment from on high whipping us on the back, Paul is not just merely telling us how to behave. He's telling us how to feel. He's not commanding our actions as much as he's commanding our hearts. He's not, don't just force unity because for the sake of unity. Be eager. Do you, do you value unity? Does the unity of our church matter to you? Paul's saying we need to be eager to fight for unity because it comes from the gospel. Because it comes from what God has done on our behalf. And so we should look at the people next to us and see blood-bought Christians. These are people whom Christ shed his blood for. That means they matter to me. And if they matter to me, then I care about our unity. The gospel creates an eagerness for unity, not just a commandment to be unified. Do you see, do you see that subtle but important distinction? So our main idea is that the gospel requires of us to fight for the unity of our church. It's something that we desire. It's worth pursuing. But here's the the good news. When Paul tells us that we must actively maintain the unity the Spirit has created, he's making two assumptions. The first assumption that Paul is making is that unity is not automatic. Unity is not automatic. Now, let me clarify this because we've already talked about how in one sense our unity is, in fact, automatic. Uh, The text, as we already talked about, says that the Spirit is the one who creates our unity. So, you could think of like our original unity. That's not something you achieved. That's not something you created. The Spirit just unified us. The moment you believe the gospel, you are unified to Christians. It's, it's an automatic work of the Spirit. And, and we, we sense this. Uh, here's, here's how I know this happens. Whenever we have visitors that come to our church, and I, they're brand new, I've never met them before, and I introduce myself and I ask them, and I find out that they're professing Christians, I love them right away. I want them to come to our church right away. I know nothing about them. They might be Detroit Red Wings fans for all I know. But I love them. Why? Because they know Jesus. Because they're my brothers and sisters. So believing the gospel just creates an automatic unity. So unity comes automatically. But notice Paul tells us that we must be eager to maintain our unity. So even though our unity originally comes to us automatically by work of the Spirit, it will not be preserved automatically. We can lose it. In other words, when... 
Two people become unified through the gospel and they start to spend time with each other. They have an automatic unity, but over time, sin starts to chip away at that bond of peace. And not even just sin. Sometimes even at a lesser level. Sometimes just personalities clash. There are some people who I just don't really vibe with them. They're not doing anything wrong. We just don't, we're not a good fit. And even small petty things like that chip away at our unity. And so over time, this amazing unity that the gospel that the Spirit creates, we live with one another and it gets chipped away and we break it. And Paul knows that, which is why Paul tells us, essentially, that the preservation of unity, it's not just going to happen automatically. It's not going to happen automatically. It must be protected. It must be preserved. It comes automatically, but it won't remain automatically. That's the first assumption he's making when he commands us to maintain our unity. The second assumption embedded into this command to eagerly maintain our unity is that unity is not easy. The first assumption is that it's not automatic. The second assumption is unity is not easy. In other words, think of it this way. The Apostle Paul has a refreshingly realistic view of the church here. When you work with people, no matter the institution, whether you work with Christians in the church or whether you work with non-Christians in a secular job, the second you put people together in a room for longer than five seconds, there's going to be conflict. There's going to be problems. There's going to be annoyances. There's going to be grievances. That's just what we do on this side of eternity. Paul understands, even though he just got done in the last few chapters talking about the church from the eschatological perspective, as this big, glorious, amazing institution that Christ has created and bought for. He knows in the everyday experience, it doesn't feel like this big, glorious, amazing institution. Sometimes it just feels like, I don't want to go to church today. And I don't want to be social today. And, and I don't get along with everybody at church. It doesn't feel like this glorious heavenly Jerusalem coming down from the clouds. It feels like a social club that's wearing on me. Paul has a realistic view of the church. He knows that if we want to be unified, it's going to take some work. We're going to have to work hard to overcome our differences, our diversity, and even our sin. We need to maintain our unity, and it's going to work hard. But here's the best news of all. Paul doesn't just say implicitly, hey, this is going to be really hard. Now, moving on. He doesn't treat the Ephesians, for example, the way I feel like finish line treated me. You've got a job to do, now go do it. What's the problem? I don't know how. I don't know how to do my job. Here's Paul saying, yeah, you're Christians and Christians need to be unified. So, and you already are unified, so go maintain it. How? If this is so hard, how do I do it? And Paul has given us three incredibly important virtues. He has given us a plan. He's given us each as individuals things we can do on our end to maintain the unity of this church. So let's look at those three things. The first one he gives us is humility. Humility. Look at verse 2. With all humility. Now what does humility mean? Uh, humility is not a literal translation of the word uh, in Greek. As a matter of fact, it's multiple words in the Greek. The Greek underneath here is actually lowly in mind. Paul says the first step towards unity is that each one of us have a low mind. This is oftentimes in Scripture uh, contrasted with a sin we call pride. 
And the literal rendition of the word pride is usually high-mindedness or being high of mind. So what it means to be humble literally means don't have a high mind, have a low mind. But what does that mean, right? What does it mean to have my mind low? And put simply, humility is thinking lower of yourself. Humility is to lower yourself in your own mind. Now, I don't mean that in the way it's often said in the culture. Like, I'm not talking about belittling yourself or hating yourself or, you know, you don't wake up every day and whip your back, I am a worm, I am a worm, right? It's not what I'm talking about. You don't need to hate yourself. As a matter of fact, that would be sinful. The Bible tells us to love ourselves, to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, right? Uh, Paul's going to later on in the book of Ephesians tell husbands to cherish their wives with the same veracity that they cherish their own bodies, right? So you should care about yourself. You should love yourself. I'm not saying you should hate yourself, but the general principle is that we all have this temptation to think more highly of ourselves than we actually deserve. We all, because of sin, have this temptation to think my preferences are more important than everyone else's preferences. And the things that, the songs that I like and the carpet color that I like and the things that I like are more important than what you like and what you like and what you like. That's pride. I, I think of myself too highly. So Paul's saying the first step to maintaining unity is to humble yourself. To think a little bit lower of yourself. To, to remember that your preferences are not the most important thing at Redeemer Christian Fellowship. The things that bug you, the things that irritate you, they might matter. But they don't just automatically trump everyone else's, right? Think a little lower of yourself. By the way, I want us to see uh, humility is such an important virtue in the Christian life. Paul emphasizes this a lot, especially as it's connected to unity and peace. And there's an amazing example where Paul uses the humility of Christ to exhort us. And I want us to see it. So keep your marker here and turn to Philippians chapter 2. Just turn over one book, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. This is a, a Christmas verse. This is a verse I almost always preach at Christmas time. So it's Christmas in July. And Paul is essentially going to tell us that we need to be humble and humility will create unity. And if you need motivation to be humble, humility is kind of hard. He's going to say, look no further than to Christ. The gospel in Christ is what you need to be humble. Here's how Paul says it. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in the first verse. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So let's stop there. So you, you see Paul is calling us to this incredible unity. Right? So how do we achieve this? How do we get to this amazing standard of being of one accord and love and unity? How do we get there? So he continues. He's going to explain it to us. Here's how you do it. Verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let's stop there. There's Paul's definition of humility. What does it mean to be humble? It means you're willing to make other people's preferences more important than your own. Now, it doesn't mean you disregard everything you think and feel, right? Because he says, look to the interests of 
others with the same interests you look to your own interests. So it's okay to have opinions. It's okay to ask me questions. It's okay to say, why don't we try this? Or why aren't we doing this? That's all okay. You have your own interests and, they, and they're important. You have the Holy Spirit of God in you. I care about your interests. I want to hear them. But at the end of the day, what needs to matter more than my own interests is putting other people's interests as more important. Humbling myself and counting them as more significant, he says in verse 3. Now, that's hard to do. It's easy to talk about. It's hard to do. So what motivation do I have to do it? And Paul's going to say, Christ. Look at verse 5. Have this mind, right, this mind of humility among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So the first thing that Christ did to prove his own humility was the incarnation itself. In other words, here's what Paul's saying. Christ had no business becoming a creature. Christ is the eternal creator. Being a creature is infinitely beneath him. He has no business becoming a human being. That's a station way, way, way beneath his calling. But he did that. Even though it was way beneath him, he lowered himself to become a creature. And why did he do that? For you. For your sake. What does humility look like? I have no business being a creature, but if I do, it will save them. And I'm more interested in them than in my station. Christ is humble. But it doesn't stop there. He didn't just become a man, which is infinitely humble. Verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The eternal, immortal God had no business being crucified at the hands of lawless men. That's way beneath him. But he did that. Why? For your sake. For my sake. The text even tells us that he became obedient to the point of death. When Jesus took on a human nature, in order to be fully human, he had to obey the Father. Because that's what human beings do. If Jesus disobeyed the Father, he would be a sinner, right? So not just Jesus becoming a man and dying on a cross, but Jesus, who is the all-authoritative God, who answers to no one, became obedient. He took orders. When Mary told Jesus to clean his room, she was telling the creator God of the whole universe, go do this right now. And Jesus responded, yes, ma'am. God the Father told Jesus, you're going to die. I've called you to this purpose. And Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane says, I don't want this, but not my will, your will. He humbled himself by being someone who has to take orders. He became a man, he became obedient, and he died. And all of that was beneath him. Why did he do it? Because we needed it. So what's the lesson we learn from humility? Sometimes what other people need is more important than what you deserve. At least in the life of the church, I'm not trying to make extrapolations into public and civic, but in the life of the church, what other people need is more important than what you deserve. That's humility. And if we can take that mindset and live that mindset out, you'd be amazed at how unified we can be.
But as Paul tells us, humility is not all we need. Let's go back to Ephesians. Humility will not automatically create unity. Humility is going to then lead us into what the ESV calls gentleness. Look at verse 2. With all humility and gentleness. The, that and there, humility and gentleness, is connecting them because Paul wants us to see that these terms are very, very related. They're very similar. Um, as a matter of fact, the ESV calls this gentleness, but your Bibles might translate this as meekness. Gentleness or meekness is what Paul is calling us to. And what is meekness? Meekness is when a person waves one's rights and personal gains for the common good with a spirit of kindness. Meekness, when you act meekly, it's when you kindly and selflessly lay down your rights for others. And this is why oftentimes people in the world will confuse meekness with weakness. They'll think you're, you're getting walked all over. The people are walking all over you. But it's not. You're not a doormat. Meekness is not a doormat. But meekness are people who care more about others and they're willing. They're not going to go aggressively get their way. They're, they're going to let others have their way. That's meekness. Humility will produce meekness. And then meekness produces our last virtue. This is really where unity becomes a reality for us. Patience, verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience. Patience literally means, a literal translation of this word would be long-suffering. You're willing to suffer for a long time. That's patience. Uh, sometimes it's, it's uh, rendered as slow to anger. Patience is where you might have reason to be angry, but you're not going to get there. That's patience. All throughout the Bible, uh, God is referred to as a patient God, a, a God who's long-suffering, a God who is slow to anger. We, 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 it's one of his attributes. We did a whole class in our Wednesday night class on the patience of God. God is long-suffering. He is slow to anger. And let me just say, I, I've, I've, many of you have been in the church even longer than I have, but I've been in long enough where I think I have a strong testimony when I can say there are a few things that disrupt a church's unity like impatience. People who are impatient tend to exacerbate small problems. Small problems are created when we lack humility, and then small problems become big problems when we lack patience. Arrogance will create the problem and patience will set it on, impatience will set it on fire. And this is why small things, you'd be amazed at how many small things have destroyed churches because people were prideful and impatient. When you're long-suffering, when you're patient, that means you're not going to lose your temper with others. It means that when they hurt your feelings, you're not going to snap and then commit more sins in the process and make things worse. Patience means that you're willing to hear other people out before you rush to conclusions. Patience means, I don't like this, but let me hear it from their perspective before I get angry and before I start complaining. That's patience. Patience oftentimes means that you're willing to turn to the Lord in prayer long before you get confrontational or start complaining. Are you willing to pray and wait on the Lord before you make a scene? Patience means waiting on the decisions of the church. Sometimes you think something needs to change and the church is being a little slow. Are you patient? Will you wait? Patience is such a key virtue 
for cultivating unity, we must be patient with one another. And that leads us to conclude with what he says at the end of verse 2. Many, many of you might think this is a fourth virtue, but I really don't think that's how we should read this. I think the end of verse 2 is actually a summary of the three virtues. Right? How does he conclude verse 2? That with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. That phrase is essentially a summary of what it looks like if all of us are humble, meek, and patient. A way you can summarize that kind of lifestyle is that we bear with one another in love. In short, to put it in layman's terms, we put up with one another. That's church unity. We put up with one another. We don't make small things big things. We don't expect everyone to conform to all of our personal preferences and ideas. We live among our diversity and we bear with one another. And, and notice Paul does not merely tell us that we bear with one another, but we do so in love. That's such an important qualification. Paul is trying to teach us that avoiding conflict and maintaining peace does not require a passive resignation, but a positive attitude towards others. Let me say that again and then explain it. Paul is trying to teach us that avoiding conflict and maintaining peace does not require a passive resignation, but a positive attitude towards others. What do I mean by that? It would be really easy to apply today's message this way. You're living life in the church and someone does something or they've been doing something you don't like and you go, ugh, I can't stand that. That's annoying. But you know what? I'll, I'll just do unity, so I'll just forget it. Just give them their way. I don't care. That's a kind of passive resignation. And I promise you that won't last long. That won't last long. When you just surrender for the sake of unity, I know that sounds like what I've been saying, but it's really not. When you just give up, oh, fine, whatever, have your way. I'll, I want to be unified, whatever, have your way. I promise you that's not going to last. There's an explosion coming later on in our future. So Paul's not merely telling us to just put up with each other, but to put up with each other in love. What's the difference? There's a difference between out of frustration, just passively giving up, and actively loving that person. I'm going to give them their way, not because the pastor told me I had to, not because I'm sick of fighting, not because I don't want to fight. I'm going to give them their way because I love them. Because I care about them. Because in humility, I've made their preferences more important than mine. You see, there's a difference between just resigning and actively loving. It's very different. Paul tells us that we don't just put up with one another. Oh, they're so annoying, but whatever. I'll just, I'll just live with it. That's not unity. I love them. So I'm not going to let that little flaw bother me because I love them. That's unity. We bear with one another in love. It's not a passive bearing. It's an active bearing. And it is when we view ourselves rightly, when we think highly of the rest of our church members, that we can be eager to surrender our desires and preferences on their behalf. So what do Christians do? How do we do our job? For starters, we live in unity with one another. Each one of us, because of the gospel, bears with one another until peace is achieved. Christians strive for unity with each other because we love one another. And because the gospel has united us together. And so the gospel then requires of us to fight for the unity of our church. 